Welcome to the CSC Podcast. I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On this episode, we'll continue redefining Classic Works with two founding members of Classics, Awoye Timpo and Arminda Thomas. We'll speak with them about their work expanding the classical canon through a better understanding of Black writers like Alice Childress, and they'll give us a bunch of suggestions on plays we could all be reading to expand our viewpoint of what constitutes a classic. That's all coming up on the CSC Podcast. My guests today are Arminda Thomas and Awoye Timpo, both founding members of Classics, a company created to expand the classical canon through an exploration of dramatic works by Black writers. They define these classic works as plays by authors of African descent from around the world that speak profoundly to the times in which they were written and resonate deeply with our own. Classics engages artists, historians, students, professors, producers, and audiences to launch these plays into the public imagination and spark productions worldwide. Classics began in 2017 as a series of staged readings in collaboration with the Martin E. Siegel Center. In 2019, Classics worked with Theatre for a New Audience to produce an ongoing series of readings. The first play in this series, Alice Childress's Wedding Band, was produced in February 2020. Awoye Timpo, founding producer of Classics, is a director and producer based in Brooklyn, New York. Her work has been seen on stages around the country and in Scotland and South Africa. Her New York directing credits include work at the Public Theatre, New York Theatre Workshop, National Black Theatre, Vineyard Theatre, and Atlantic Theatre Company. Regionally, she has directed at the Studio Theatre, Actors Theatre of Louisville, and Berkeley Rep. Arminda Thomas is a dramaturg, director, and archivist. She's currently co-producer and dramaturg for Classics, and she has served as Associate Artistic Director and Resident Dramaturg for the Going to the River Festival and Writers' Unit, and as Literary Associate and Archivist for D. Davis Enterprises, where she served as Executive Producer for the Grammy-awarded audiobook with Ozzy and Ruby in This Life Together, and Consultant for the film Life's Essentials with Ruby D. As a dramaturg, she has worked with various theaters, including New Perspectives, Theater for a New Audience, Baltimore Center Stage, New Federal Theater, Classical Theater of Harlem, and Signature Theater. Hi, Awoye. Hi, Arminda. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Phil. Hi. It's good to see you. I'm so, so glad that we're able to have this talk. I'm, I've been looking forward to it for quite some time, and uh, I'm really excited to dive in and learn a little bit more about your work, and hopefully our listeners can find out a little bit more too about classics. So uh, that, that's let's start with that. Um, now, can we start actually because people are listening and they're not reading the name classics of your organization is spelled with an X at the end, um, C-L-A-S-S-I-X. Um, what's that about? How did that all begin? Like, why, why does it have that name for people that might be curious about that? And, you know, does that lead into maybe how, how the company started, where where it's from? <laughs> yes. No, it's it's such a good question. I always joke that I'm the worst person at naming things ever because um, I'll, I'll be like, oh, we could call it this. And be like, no, that doesn't, that really doesn't work. That doesn't feel right. But the, the name for classics um, really came out of this investigation of like, what what is it that we consider to be a classic play? 
Um, and also the idea that there are so many incredible plays that we think really should be a part of, of, of the canon, but that are in a way kind of um, also um, unknown. So it's uh, kind of in, in, the, in the tradition of, of, of the 60s folks, it's a, it's a reclamation really of what the classics actually are um, as, 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 as determined by an investigation of the Black classical canon, looking at Black writers and Black artists who, who have been creating work for, for centuries. Um, so that, that's, where, that's, where the name, that's where the name began. And now, now I enjoy it. I feel like it's quite catchy now. That's great. And how, so when did the, when did the actual group, when did you start doing work and when, when did that all begin? So um, classics actually all started uh, in about 2016, 2017. Um, I was uh, George Wolfe's assistant director on the Broadway production of Shuffle Along, um, which is a, a musical that is so important to the history of musical theater, but one that I actually never heard of before um, You know, we started doing workshops, workshops of the show. So for me, the process of being a part of that show was in fact um, so much of uh, a beginning of, of a curiosity as well. Um, so, but basically one day we were in a um, rehearsal and George Wolf said, hey, um, have you read these two plays? And he mentioned the play, The Forbidden City by Bill Gunn. And he also mentioned a play called The Brothers by a woman named Kathleen Collins. And um, both of those plays, I had never heard of the plays and I didn't know the writers. Um, and I said, you know, George Wolf says, go and read these two plays. You go and you, <laughs> you go and you find and you read those two plays. Um, and so I went on a search for, for both of them thinking, oh, I'll just go on Amazon and just really quickly order them. I'll read them. It'd be great. Um, and actually had a little bit of difficulty finding them. The, the Kathleen Collins play is in a collection of works called Nine Plays by, by Black Women um, that at the time I was having trouble tracking down. Um, and the um, the Forbidden City has um, been out of out of print for for a while. So I was calling the drama bookshop and doing all this research online. Um, and was and once I found these plays in two separate public libraries in New York City, I was like, first of all, these plays are extraordinary. And so not only are these incredible plays, but also how come I don't know these writers? You know, Bill Gunn, his play, The Forbidden City, was one of the last plays that Joe Papp ever directed at the Public Theater in 1989. You know, the brothers, Kathleen Collins, is not only this incredible playwright, but she was also an incredible filmmaker, a screenwriter, a, a short story writer whose films now, she's got an incredible film called Losing Ground, which is very quickly becoming a, a, a part of the black cinema canon, but it wasn't appreciated or known really in its, in its own time. So part of classics is about looking at what is our classical canon? What is the black classical canon? And this is a question that historians and scholars and artists and directors have been asking for, for a long time. So it was really me kind of joining the investigation that was already at play. And then over the course of, um, so then in 2017, um, I had a conversation with Frank Hengster at the Siegel Center. And we, um, and I asked, what do you think about us doing a reading series of these black classic plays? So we chose four plays, the two I mentioned, and also Ron Milner's What the Wine Cellars Buy and Alice Childress's play Wine in the Wilderness. And we did a reading series at the Siegel Center. The thing that really grew out of that is 
the really beautiful collaboration that um, our now classics team has. So um, I had met Arminda, uh, we had worked on a show together in the Bay Area last uh, spring. Um, and so I knew about her love and commitment of, of, of these of these plays. So we started having conversations. I started connecting with AJ Muhammad, who's a brilliant producer of the Farthest Time Festival, but also a researcher at the Schomburg, um, a brilliant actor and a producer, Brittany Bradford. Um, and we got into great conversations about experimental and avant-garde Black theater. And then the director, Dominique Ryder, and they and I had great conversations about what it means to be a director thinking about and looking at all of these plays. So over the course of time, our, our classics team, our classics crew, just <laughs> very naturally kind of grew and evolved. And, um, and right now it's, it's a really beautiful group of, of people who are just really um, curious and excited to explore um, what, the, what the canon is. That's really incredible it's it's so wonderful to to hear that origin and then also to see you know how how you've been able to kind of come forward in a fairly short amount of time to do all of this great work and it sounds like it's long long overdue you you mentioned the schomburg center which for people in um in the new york area that that might be able to i mean it's it's i, I don't know how open it is right now uh but it is a part of the new york public library system and um you know it's a really really important place for for all new yorkers but people around the country to go and and find out about black culture and and black writers and um i i i hope that maybe one of the things we can we can parcel out with this is about exploring places like that exploring works like that Mm -hmm. uh, because it's really 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 crucial especially at this moment in time Mm. yeah yeah and so many of these pieces that you find you you have to find sitting in the schomburg either in their archives department or just, you know, in books that have been out of print for so long. So you finally get a chance to explore them. But why do, why do you think that is? Why is it only at the Schomburg? Why, why is it so hard to find? I mean, we know that the, the, the base reason, right, that we are living in a world that is unfortunately very racist and, and white supremacy is, is, is the, the rule here in, in, in a major way. Is there something more than that as to why um, why it's there? I think we we value things that get produced. Yes, I mean I really think that that that's what it is. You value things that get produced, and so if you have um, like plays that were uh, published and produced for a moment once or twice in the twenties, it goes away. You just you just don't get to see it. Or even if it was produced by Joe Papp in nineteen eighty nine. And that was the production. It goes away, and then you just you don't hear about it again. Even if it, even if you have a lot of buildup around it before, you just it's just it's it's just an unfortunate fact that you yeah. know. And so productions are really important, and keeping things in in memory. Um, we have a lot of conversation around reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. Like we are always rediscovering. Um, these writers were always rediscovering the work that's been done that should really just be part of the thing that we come into um, our careers with. We we find ourselves discovering later on and then trying to figure out how to <laughs> how to present it. And, you know, and so how do we do it this time so that nobody has to come and read and dig this up in 20 years? I don't know the answer to that. But we just keep, you know, 
we just keep on in the line of march as langston hughes would say you know because <laughs> certainly legacy is something that everyone's thinking of when they, when they're writing when artists are writing their own work about how will it be you know experienced or, or read or or watched years from now um so it's it's interesting to see how even even though that's something that people consider when they are creating their work and 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 it doesn't always go to plan, right? And mm -hmm. we we have to continue to keep those legacies alive, even even when uh, they are beginning to be forgotten or or they've been kind of cast aside in some ways. Yeah, and also just to, to add to that too, Phil, it's it's really um, interesting. I think all all of the classics team members kind of have a a story about you know, being in school and what are the, what are the plays by black writers uh, that we were reading, especially, you know, for those of us who um, finished school 15, 20 years ago, plus years ago, you know, um, before the, the era of the Susan Lloyd Parks and the, um, and the Lynn Nottages, you know, these brilliant, brilliant writers. Um, so, you know, what I say, when I graduated from college, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think we read I mean, a raisin in, maybe we read a raisin in the sun and fences. But when people kind of think about what is the black classical canon, those really and and piano lesson too, those really are the plays that have really endured and been produced um, the most. And they're exceptional, phenomenal, breathtaking pieces of of theater to be sure. But over time, exactly to Arminda's point, the things that ended up getting produced um, on a regular basis meant that there wasn't um, there wasn't um, as much attention outside of you know um, places like uh, Negro Ensemble Company, New Federal Company, you know, really saying let us celebrate these works at, at, at the opportunities that we can. Um, but it means that there's some plays like um, Charles Gordon's No Place to Be Somebody that was produced um, and won won a Pulitzer Prize, but that so many people actually have have never heard of or, or never or never read. And there's just a, a long, long list of plays. Um, that that fit in that category, um, and so part you know part of our work is looking looking at those plays and seeing how can we um, bring them back or at least make them also accessible for people um, to to read and engage with. Can we talk a little bit about Alice Childress? Because what I, I wanted to ask you about this because she's one of the playwrights that your work focuses on, and mm -hmm. personally, growing up. I loved her novel, A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich. I've read it multiple <laughs> times. Right. It's also, it's a great book for anyone who hasn't read it before. You should right. read it. Um, but what's really interesting to me is, so I, I just on a personal level, I went to theater school growing up. I took acting classes from, you know, the time I was in fourth grade till I was a senior in college. I went to college for theater and English and all this, right? I wasn't aware that she was a playwright until the last couple of years. Mm. And... I was learning all about the contemporaries of her time, you know, Sam Shepard, John Guare, they were all writing at the same time. They were getting produced at various theaters, some of the, some of, some of the same theaters in New York, right? Um, and her work is just not included in the theater teachings and, you know, productions that has a lot to do with it, but she holds such an important place in American theater history. Why? What what is that place? Can we talk a little bit about? I want I want to know more, and I think our listeners should know more too. Um, I, I discovered Alice Childress. I um, by some uh, mishap of great fortune, uh, accidentally ended up spending eighteen years as the archivist for Ossie Davis and Ruby D. 
which wow. basically meant that I dug around in their basement and organized things and made it possible for them to find them and to tell people about them because they were, um, <clears throat> this is a long way to get around there. I promise I'm gonna get there. But they and I started when they were writing their joint autobiography, they were about to celebrate their 50th anniversary, and they were at a time when people wanted to acknowledge them, and people were, you know, articles were coming out about them, and it was really important to them to point to the people they felt were important, to point to their origin so that people didn't begin at Raisin in the Sun and end at uh, Do the Right Thing, that, that they, you know, that they talked about the American Negro Theater, about the Rose McClendon players, about Alice Childress. Um, so, um, so I discovered Alice Childress, and I had been a theater major. I had gone to Columbia, and you know, and gotten a master's in dramaturgy. I, you know, I, I apparently knew some things, but I discovered Alice Childress in the basement um, with a bunch of other writers. But because Ruby did the did the first four productions of wedding band um she did you know they had a, I mean, and so um and and so it was and it was a really important part of um of her career it was important to her um because alice childers was important to her she didn't actually always feel like she was the person to play that role because she had uh a lot of modesty, but, um, <laughs> but you know, she didn't always feel she was the person to play that role, but she was dedicated to it happening, to these things happening. So, um, and, and I, you know, and I read through scripts and I was like, this is kind of cool. This is, this is really interesting. And then um, I was working with Elizabeth Van Dyke with Going to the River, uh, which is a festival that um, celebrates the works of um, female playwrights of color. And we did a reading of Wedding Band and I heard it and it came mm. alive in a way. And I was like, I don't understand. Mm. I don't understand how I got to be this old. I don't understand how I have come this far in my life and dedicated, um, you know, no small amount of my time to, <laughs> to this study and, 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 and have come out this ignorant. Um, and then, um, you know, I read Trouble in Mind because somebody was doing a reading of it or a, a school production and wanted me to come in and talk about it. And I, and again, I'm like, but wait, I don't understand, <laughs> you know, um, mm -hmm. and we did a reading of Wine in the Wilderness for New Perspective. And each time I, I kept coming away with, this is so deep. This is so rich. This is so insane. It's just insane that I don't know. And I think with Alice Childress, the thing that is most galling to me is that people knew it at the time. Mm. Is that there was, it was not a, there was not a sense that, ah, oh, she's I, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Trouble in Mind was brilliant. Mm. It was supposed to go to Broadway. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to go to Broadway in 1957 and it didn't because they wanted rewrites that eventually she, she couldn't make anymore. Um, and um, Wedding Band was supposed to go to Broadway. Um, in, in 1963, I think they did a reading of it with Diana Sands and they already had backers. It was, it was optioned for Broadway like seven times. But the first production was in 1966 in Michigan and the last big production and the next production, the next, the New York production didn't happen until 1972. So this 
just insane amount of time passes, um, which changes the context of the play, which changes the way that you're seeing it. Um, because there's a whole nother, there's a whole different context in 1972 for the questions people are asking. And so it doesn't really get the hearing that I think it deserved. I mean, it was, people acknowledged that it was, you know, that it was a good play, that it was well done, but they felt like we had moved on from whatever was happening. And I think that that's probably short-sighted. I don't think we ever really move on from wedding band, but I will concede that 1972 was probably not the time to make that argument. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that that is, um, that is one of the things that really draws me to Alice Childress, that she was just so, um, so widely acknowledged to be, you know, who she was. Lorraine Hansberry wrote an article. She was she was writing as a reporter in Paul Robeson's paper in the 50s and wrote that, you know, Alice Childress was probably the best, um, you know, African-American playwright and that she was doing this better than anybody else. And yet, you know, you go through your whole life and you don't know, and you don't know her name. It just makes no sense. So that was actually, I think, um, the thing that Awoye and I bonded over because I was I was having this moment and I walked up to her. I think it was the first thing I said to her. <laughs> I was just like, I am obsessed with Alice Childress and I need there to be an Alice Childress season and I see Alice Childress all over Harlem. <laughs> I just want to and I didn't know about classics yet. I just, I just was <laughs> bursting with this kind of insane fervor. And Oye said, yes. <laughs> that was the universe. That was divine order. It was. It was divine order. <laughs> yes. So if people want to experience her plays or read their, her plays, is that easy to do? Or is it hard to do if I wanted to, to read her plays right now? It is actually now not hard to do because um, Kathy Perkins, who everything I ever want to know about Black women playwrights comes to me because Kathy Perkins pretty much wrote an article or published a book or selected plays. Um, <laughs> but um, she put to, she worked with Alice Childress uh, getting together a, a collection of her plays and it was published um, after her death. It was published, I think, in 2011. But um, it's... So it's available. You can read. Uh, it has Trouble in Mind and Wedding Band and One in the Wilderness and also her first play, Florence, which was written in 1949, and um, Selections from Gold Through the Trees, which was this piece that was done in a cabaret and it had music that they don't have in the piece. Then it, it had a lot uh, going on, but they had trouble coming up with what the definitive script was. But she put one in. She put she made one in, and it's it's awesome. Um, so I would suggest that. And you can also get. She had two one acts that went up at Negro Ensemble Company, Mojo, and String. String is an adaptation of. Um, I want to say Baudelaire, but I'm gonna be wrong. It's Maupassant. <laughs> Piece. Um, and uh, yeah, so so those things. So she is available. There's a lot that she wrote that is not available, um, and there are a lot of things that did not quite get published that I would love to explore and get readings of. But um, those things are available. 
And I should add to that too, uh, which which is so um, which is so beautiful, and and just so excited to to shout out the incredible work of Kathy Perkins, who, in addition to all of this incredible work that she has done um, celebrating Black female Black female writers, is also a brilliant lighting designer and a brilliant professor that has been her her life's work so she she's just an extraordinary woman who we got to connect with recently um and i'm, I'm just so excited for people to go out and, and check out all the work that she's done um but it does make me think um the the other there's a couple of different components to classics that arminda is is touching on so basically we we like to think of our work inside of four different pillars so the first pillar is readings and productions. Um, so that is um, doing readings of the plays that people can come to, we can invite students to. We've done, in addition to the readings at the Siegel Center um, earlier this year, um, we worked with Theater for a New Audience to present a reading of Wedding Band in February. Um, so, the um, and hopefully also, um, we're really looking forward to connecting with theaters um, around the country and also around the globe that are thinking about how to um, integrate more of these plays into their seasons so that we can be a resource um, for, for people and do consultations or et cetera, um, so that people can really see these plays inside of their, inside of their programming. So that's the first pillar. Um, the second pillar is an educational pillar, um, and that pillar is really all about how, how are we teaching these? How are we teaching these plays in school? When people are selecting scenes for for, for scene study, um, when people are selecting plays for production inside of school, when people are talking about the avant-garde theater or experimental theater, making sure that these are included. You know, I I, I grew up just obsessed with Beckett and Ionesco. You know what I mean? Um, so finding out who are the other um, playwrights who are writing inside of that tradition, who are who are black playwrights. Um, and so we, we're, we're starting conversations with a number of different schools to begin these pilot programs so we can really see what, what, this, what the school is doing in their, um, in their programming and in, in their curriculum planning um, and seeing how we can kind of work together about that. So that's the education component. Um, there's a narrative pillar, which is really all about how do we tell stories about these plays? Um, and so one of the really fun things that we're building right now is a podcast series um, that is gonna um, chronicle five different eras or themes in black theater history. So we have been just doing uh, so much research and so much reading and having so many brilliant conversations around our first era and that's gonna be the minstrelsy era. Um, and we're looking forward to releasing that in the next couple of months. Um, and then the last pillar is publication. So there's a lot of the plays that are um, that are accessible. You can go wherever you purchase books and find them easily. Um, but there's a number of other plays that might be, you know, as I said, with my my own kind of journey into into classics um, that are really hard to find or they're out of print. Um, and so um, what we want to do is create new publications of some of those plays. Take a playwright and say um, maybe there's five of their plays that are extremely difficult to access and create a new edition. Um, of work or a new reader about that person's about that person's place. Um, we we imagine too that that will also include some other additional essays and scholarship um, about about each of the plays. So, um, but it is a really important a really important part of the puzzle actually. How a to make sure that this, the plays are ac accessible, um, but also how to make sure um, that um, that the there's there's 
continued documentation of what these of what these plays were. Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful. And they can find out more uh, information on your website about all of these pillars and um, this that where the podcast will eventually be and all of that as well. They can find all that information there. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And at some point early next year, um, we should have um, what we're building as a classics catalog, which we hope will be just a research, resource for anybody who's excited and learning more about the plays, where you can go look up an author, see what a list of plays they wrote, and then also see um, where you might be able to, to find them. So that's coming soon. That's wonderful. So who are some other playwrights that you do work with uh, with your company or other playwrights that you're that you're kind of jazzed about that you'd like to you'd like to talk about? So, you know, one, one of the plays that I, I can't wait for everybody to be able to read is um, is is The Forbidden City um, by Bill Gunn, which t- is to me, in my mind, just a, a masterpiece of, of a play. Um, it, his um, writing was so um, beautiful and profound and, and prophetic and sometimes sometimes brutal and honest, but also so um, lyrical um, that it, it, I, when I first read the play and when we did the reading of the play, I was like, this this really is a transcendent play. It's so exceptional. Um, he has another play called Jonas, which I just think is an incredible kind of fusion of a kind of traditional narrative form with a short story form um, that's really um, invigorating and beautiful. So um, that play right now is not accessible, but um, once it is accessible, we will 100% be um, mentioning it on 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 the website. Um, I, I know Arminda and I can play this game all day, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna toss it over to her. Um, I'm gonna channel Dominique and and talk about <laughs> Aisha Rahman, um, who wrote a couple of amazing plays. Well, that I've personally read. Um, some that I haven't read that I trust are amazing, but <laughs> but um, uh, the Mojo and the Say So which is um, just this, it's this fan, it's this play that's really, it's about dealing with grief um, and in a, in a kind of jazz way that's about dealing with, um, with guilt and grief and, and police involved shootings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's just in, in this form that I, I, that is really eye-opening and uh, it's just such a fresh take and it's such a, it's such a great piece. So, you know, we're talking about all, all of these playwrights that a lot of people have not read that they they're they're unfamiliar with, mm-hmm. um, and reading plays is great. You know, we but, but can only get you so far. How how do we produce more of these plays? How do we get them? How do we get them funded? How do we get them more on stages, not just in New York but across the country? How do we expose more people to them so they're not just reading them okay. and so they're really kind of experiencing them? Yeah, you know, I think the thing is, we we, you know, obviously the the, the structures and the infrastructures are are in real, um, you know, we're we're taking a real look and investigation into how how those things work. But at the end of the day, all of these plays, um, is, you know, the ones that are most accessible, um, they are we we, we the, the machinery is already in place. We know how to we know how to make great plays. We've got great directors who know how to make great plays. We've got brilliant actors who know how to act in great plays. It's in a way, it's really quite, it's really quite simple. It's reading them and making the choice to produce them and knowing that, th- that these plays 
are an essential part of not only black theater history, but also American theater history and world theater history. And that by exploring these plays, it's all giving us an opportunity to connect more deeply to ourselves, to the society that we live in, to our community, to joy, to love, to laughter, whatever the things are that are expressed in these plays. So it's really a simple matter of taking the play and doing the thing we know how to do to make it happen and to share it with people all around the world so that they can have illuminating and beautiful artistic theatrical experiences. I think that's so that's so smart and so well put because you know we we've been talking at Classic Stage Company a lot about redefining a classic and what a classic is and for so many people it's just Shakespeare and that's it. And it goes so much further and so much more it's it's beyond that. And to relegate plays or playwrights to certain categories that they fit in, whether you know it, these plays are better for for Black theater history as opposed to world theater history or American theater history, mm-hmm. it doesn't help them flourish. It doesn't help theater flourish as as we move forward. So that redefining what the classic is is it's so crucial right now, and it's it's what we have to do so that audiences also when they hear a play produced by someone other than Shakespeare at a classical theater, they're not surprised by that. And they want to go see it, and it's not so shocking for them. And I think the more we're able to, to take steps in that direction, uh, the more these names will be known mm-hmm. and, and more familiar, right? And I'll say, too, before tossing it over to Arminda, you know, I think the other thing, you know, I'm, I'm a director, really. So I, I, I think about these classic plays um, also through the lens of, of, of a director. And I think that um, the opportunities of these plays to really um, to the, the opportunities for um, interpretation and exploration of these plays is really, really exciting to me. And my hope is that through an investigation of the of classical plays, through interpretations by directors, that it's not only an investigation of the past, but it's also helping people really think about what is a play. Mm-hmm. How do we produce plays? What does it mean to make a play? Period, full stop. And what the plethora of possibilities are. So my, my belief is that through an investigation and through interpretation of, of classic plays, it can also really transform how contemporary writers are investigating their own work now as we're building work for the future. One thing that's come up too is that for some reason, for many reasons maybe, American works in particular are not viewed as classic. And I think that that has a lot to do with uh, how old this country is compared to other countries. And you can you can talk all about that all you want. But there's also something about the work, American work, that it's just not held to that same standard. Um, and, you know, John Doyle, our artistic director, he's talked about this a couple times in our Classic Conversations um, video series that's come up a bit. And, you know, that the, that the British plays and the Greek plays and that this is what's held up in some way. Um, are there ways that we can that we can break that that help that help the American theater flourish today? Right? Are there ways that we can go beyond and really kind of explore world theater more and really look at American theater deeper to say it is good, it is great, it is classic, um, regardless of how old it, it may or may not be compared to other plays? I I think some of it is just taking you you know, just choosing to value, right? You you make a choice about what you value. There was a point in 
the 18th century where, you know, Shakespeare wasn't so much valued as the stories were good and we're going to tinker with them and change them because God knows, you know, why would you kill Cordelia? So obviously we're not going to be doing that for a hundred years. Um, you know, and then we got over it, but so just allowing that to be, you know, to remember that, that, that most things have not been sacrosanct. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most things have not been. Um, and then, and then just allowing ourselves to be as, um, to value and also not to be sacrosanct about the things that are a part of our history. And so that, you know, so that nothing, I think the, the, the thing that is helpful and hopeful is that, um, as we, as we build, you know, I mean, there is kind of, you know, I, I've always thought there was an American theater canon, but that's probably because I came up in an age where there were only three that anybody ever talked about, right? Yes, and, and exactly, exactly. And you know, that, you know, the other thing is too, like, we it, it really it it's the thing that makes us really question, like, who has been defining what the, what the classical canon is? Right. Because if if if, if we got Armando Thomas, AJ Muhammad, Brittany Bradford. <laughs> Dominique Ryder determining what's the classical canon, it's going to look a whole different kind of way, you know, and yeah. it's going to feel a whole different kind of way. And it can both celebrate the, the greatness of the O'Neills and the Tennessee Williams and also the Aisha Rachmans and also the Charles Grodunes and also the Amaze Césaires and also the Olo Rutimis. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And so then it becomes really a question about not what, uh, what determines what a classic is. It goes to a question of who's curating what the classical canon looks like mm -hmm. and who is financing what the classical canon looks like yeah and and who who's coming to see it mm -hmm. who who's who's being given access to see these plays right. because you know as a as a theater marketer which is which is my background um you know so much of what theaters especially nonprofits in new york what they do is based on will and audience commerce to see this or not because finances are tight and you have to make sure there's an audience coming in but when that's either taken off the table and it's not an issue and you know access is is open um, it makes that a little bit easier to choose works that aren't the thing that everyone's familiar with if there's one segment of your audience um, that's coming to all your plays and all they want to do is see these plays that they've known by two or three playwrights for the last hundred years that's all you're ever going to do so we have to take the option to expand that and to make sure that there are more people coming to the theater that then get to decide what it is we're seeing or what it is they're seeing rather mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's going to open things up the reason why we see tennessee williams plays over and over again and shakespeare plays over and over again is because that's what that's what the ticket holders, that's what the ticket buyers have been purchasing over and over again without without a lot of challenge to that, which is which is really sad. Yeah, and, and it's because, you know, if we look at the kind of evolution of the both off-Broadway system and the regional system over the course of the past 50, 60 years, it's like, what is the audience that these specific audience theaters are, um, are are aiming to communicate with, not that the audiences aren't there, not that the audiences don't have the resources to come and enjoy. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but just kind of, oh, I agree. but it's, but you know, this sense of like, how, how, how has the evolution of both what we're defining as a play 
as a classic play and as an audience been structured over the course of the past century? And what do we need to do in regards to that as well to be able to create a more comprehensive, beautiful um, array of what theater is? Because I would just argue that that what we what we think of as 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 what the American theater is is actually a very narrow subset, both in terms of both racially and artistically of what theater actually truly fully is. And so there's a lot of things that you know. I say we've got to like figure out how to kind of see beyond the illusions into what's real. That I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that's really really well put. So. We're nearing the end of our time, and one of the things that we're doing with the podcast is we are asking our guests to tell us about works that are not often referred to as part of the theatrical uh, classical canon, but that they should be. So we talked already about a couple playwrights, but I would love to know some other recommendations that you might have for our listeners that maybe they would want to read a little bit more about, um, and then we'll put these on our website as a kind of a reading list. We'll also put some of the other ones that you mentioned um, before, too. So what are your your picks for the CFC podcast reading list thing that we're compiling. <laughs> what do you think? There, there's a couple that there's a couple that come to mind um, for me. Um, I think that Moon on a Rainbow Shawl by Errol John is an exceptional piece of, of, of writing and theater and, and accessible. So I really hope that people can go out and explore that a little bit more. Um, we were having a great uh, conversation on our classics chain um, earlier today about the incredible work of Aimé Césaire, who not only wrote um, a brilliant play called A Tempest based on Shakespeare's play, but also has a really really beautiful, brilliant play called The Tragedy of King Christoph, um, which uh, is a play that takes place um, at, um, just after the, the Haitian Revolution. And the things that Césaire, who was writing um, in the mid 20th century, um, the way that he was playing with form and playing with language, I think is really, really exciting um, and dynamic. So those are the, those are the couple that I would, that I would share. Great. Arminda, what about you? What do you have? Um... You took Moon on a Rainbow Shawl. Uh, so, <laughs> I know, right? No, that's, that's, it's high up on everybody's list. It's high um, up on everybody's list. <laughs> um, you know, a play that's actually really dear to my heart is uh, Pearly Victorious, hmm. um, which is by Ossie Davis. And it is, there was a musical made in the 70s, in 1970, called Pearly, which he, he kind of did the book for. He was actually off in Nigeria directing something, but he let his he let people like do the book, and it's fine. Um, and people know the musical. It gets it it gets done occasionally, um, and it's and it's great and it's fun. It's the first time the first time I encountered anything from the play was a song um, from the musical, but um, but the satire it was it was really revolutionary in terms of um, dealing with struggle. With black struggle as satire um, on stage on Broadway, it was you know Malcolm Martin Luther King and Malcolm X came to see it. Du Bois came to see it. It was you know so and um, and it had Godfrey Cambridge and Bea Richards and just and it was like I think Alan Alda's first role on Broadway. Um, and so it's just this amazing, uh, amazing funny piece that. Um, that doesn't get as much attention because it is a straight play and it has a musical attached to it. But I think that the piece itself is, um, is just really fascinating. So, so the Aussie Davis, and then also 
um, Eulalie Spence, who was a writer, uh, a Harlem Renaissance writer in the 1920s. She was um, she was heavily involved with the Kriegwa, uh Du Bois's Kriegwa players, even though they had uh, huge fights about the purpose of theater. Um, but she wrote um, these plays, largely set in Harlem, but but very based in um, in in folk, in like common people. Also focused on, in her one acts, uh, women who were uh, sometimes middle-aged, sometimes young, but but who were um, who were at the center and were not um, performers or stars or extraordinary in a way that um, that you almost have to be to be focused on during that time. So um, and and took them seriously. I mean, there was a the debate at that time during the Holland Renaissance was was kind of about um, whether theater should be propaganda. Right, whether it should speak to uplift and or speak to lynching or speak to the issues of the day, and um, she was firmly against that. She was firmly of the mind that people went to the theater to be entertained, and um, but that did not mean that she wrote a fr- about frivolity. She really tried to capture um, people's lives in the everyday and the things that really affected them and the and the hypocrisy that that made their lives worse or the bad choices that made their lives worse or just um and captured i think um just the the lives of the people she has a piece called the starter which is about an elevator starter i couldn't figure out what it was i mean (laughs) i'm going like the starter what does that mean what is an elevator starter (laughs) What is an elevator starter? Well, an elevator starter is not an elevator operator. The elevator operator takes the things up. The elevator starter tells the elevator operator which floor they're going to and whether they're going up or whether they're going down. The oh. elevator starter and kind of guides people into the elevators. So this was a thing at, at large buildings and department stores. Oh, interesting. Um, so. You know, and it's a working class job, but it has a it has unions and well, yeah, and you know, dues and it gets you. It's kind of aspirational, um, <laughs> but it's about a starter who's who's in love with a person who's a finisher in the sweatshops, who works in the sweatshops, and she's a finisher on hand pieces, and it's just this really deciding whether or not they're going to get married. And uh, Eulalie Spence was never married, and this might be tipping the hand, but it just this idea about um, the things that people think they should be thinking about and the things that people really do have to think about, mm. like about um, what is about the, the pragmatism <laughs> mm. uh, versus romance, which I think, and, and in a very short time, it's like 15 pages, but it's, it's just a gem. Um, and then she has a piece called Undertow, which is a darker piece, but is just um, stunning. I got to direct some of those for New Perspectives this summer. Well, we'll add those to the website. We'll put those on, on the list with some of the other ones we mentioned. Uh, I can't thank you both enough for, for, for joining me today. This has been illuminating and fascinating. And I hope I hope uh, all of our listeners uh, find out more about um, these plays, but also more about what you're doing. Um, the the website again, just so I don't get it wrong, Awoye is is the classics 
T-H-E-C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot org. And you can also follow us on Instagram um, where we're doing, um, for the month of October, we've been doing um, 31 days of Black theater history and highlighting a different author each day and also on Twitter. That's great. I've, I have to check that out myself right now. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Thank you again so much. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll hopefully we'll see you maybe at a CSC show or at a classics show uh, sometime very, very soon, I hope. Thanks. Anyway, thank you, Phil. Thanks so much for listening. You can visit our website at classicstage.org for more information on Classic Stage Company, this podcast, and a reading list featuring the plays mentioned today. Again, I'm Phil Haas, and we'll be back next month with a new episode of the CSC Podcast.